Maybe you have these rooms in your house, rooms or garages, as the case may be, that are stuffed to the hilt with, well, stuff, all kinds of things, closets or whatever it may be in your house. It's the, it's the space in your house where you put something when you don't have any idea where to put it, right? We all have uh, these spaces. I was talking to a man uh, once who was in the midst of uh, cleaning out a part of his house. It was clear by virtue of his front yard, um, what he was putting in the yard, things that you wouldn't normally put in the yard. And as he was cleaning things out, I engaged him in conversation. He's an acquaintance. And um, I said, it feels so good, doesn't it, just to clean out things, right? Just to get the, get the stuff out, get the trash out, whatever it is. And he said, you know, it, it really does feel good. He said, but you know what? What really feels good is the, it's the opportunity that comes with making more room. That's the way I put it. The opportunity that comes with making more room. Now, those two things really do happen side by side. If you've, if you've had that cleaning out experience and then you look at that space and you think to yourself, oh, what an opportunity I have with this new space, Right? You know, that son or daughter goes off to college and their bedroom is all of a sudden open to you. And that's where the jacuzzi goes. (laughs) Oh, the opportunity with this new space. Cleaning out often does make an opportunity with that new room. As we look at Mark chapter 11 together, verses 12 through Uh, 25, I really want you to listen to the text under uh, the points of what is Jesus cleaning out, and in his cleaning out, what is the opportunity of which he provides in the making of new room? What is it that he's cleaning out, and what is the opportunity that arises as he now has made space or new room for something new to happen. Let's think about this text under those two headings, even now as we read it, and then in a moment as we reflect on it together. Mark chapter 11, pick up the reading in verse 12. On the following day, when they, that's disciples, came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, that's the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seeds of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. 
And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would ask now that this um, ever-living, always true, infallible word that is intended For the good of your people, a token and an expression of your love to us, that you reveal yourself to us and your will, that you would now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to hear it, hear it and truly receive it in heart, and obey all of its teachings, walking according to your will. Renew us by cleaning house in the hearts in this room. And renewing our commitment to you, our holy temple. Come and meet with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a bit of an unusual text, especially the variety of teaching that's found within these uh, 13 verses. Uh, Two different sections on this strange cursing of the fig tree hemmed in on either side with this unusual expression of of anger and outburst that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ in the cleansing of the temple, only to conclude with a section on prayer that tells us we can ask for whatever it is we want and God's going to give it to us. Well, we'll get there. Not exactly in the way that I just said it. It's an unusual section, isn't it? pulling in a number of themes and threads that, well, trace themselves all the way back, as you might imagine, to the Old Testament and and, and don't ultimately find fulfillment in many regards until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the aspects of what it is we'll look at here in this text. But I do want you to see the master of how Mark has unfolded the historical components here in, in Mark chapter 11, what he's trying to teach us by combining some of these themes and aspects together. Uh, by hemming in the cleansing of the temple with this, with this fig tree cursing narrative, Mark is wanting to tell us that to understand the cleansing of the temple, we've got to understand it's connected to what Jesus does with the fig tree. Uh, the fig tree is actually entering in almost commentary-like, almost parable-like, by telling us what Jesus is going to do and is up to in the cleansing of the temple. And the final section, verses 20 to 25, the wrapping up of the fig tree narrative, is in some ways pointing back to what it is that Jesus did and then forward to how we ought to live as believers, as people who truly are in the temple of the living God, who have communion with the Lord and can pray in concert with the heart of the Lord, how He has revealed Himself in the Word and with confidence know that when we pray it has been answered. 
Now, in a thumbnail sketch, we've got to begin to sort of figure out how do these imageries that are in this text and its teaching actually really well fit together. Well, I think there are a number of indications in this text that we should dig into it in a way to begin to explore the meaningfulness of the images that Jesus invokes here by acting out this parable. For starters, all throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel are referred to uh, through and with the image of figs. Now that might sound strange to many of us here in this room, but figs were something of a culinary delicacy in the ancient uh, Near East. In fact, to have a fruitful vine and to have a fig tree that was lush with figs became a picture of blessing, of benediction from the Lord. And the prophets regularly invoke that imagery to describe God's benevolence and kindness to the people of Israel. But, but likewise, a fig tree that doesn't produce or a fig tree that produces bad figs is a picture of, of judgment, is a picture of, of cursing from the Lord. Let's take, for example, Jeremiah 8.13. Uh, Jeremiah writes, when I would gather them, that's God speaking, when I would gather Israel, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine. So notice the use of the vine there. Nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. This is God speaking to the people of Israel as he considers the fact that he's invested deeply in them with prophets and priests and kings. He's poured out his graces upon the people of Israel. If we put it in a horticultural imagery, he's given them sunshine. He's given them water. He's fertilized them. And he's now looking at them and he would expect to see fruit. But what does he see? No fruit. A vine that's empty, a fig tree that has no figs. They have not measured up. They have not produced that which he would have expected they would have produced. Micah chapter 7 verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. There is no first ripe fig that my soul desires. If we were to take these images of of Israel in the Old Testament and many more that we could look at by the prophets and trace them here into Mark chapter 11, we could put it in the context like this. Jesus is the master gardener who has been tending this vine, this fig tree called Israel for all of its existence. He's given to it everything that it needs for life and for vibrancy and for uh, deep connection to Him. It even, as we're told in the text, is full of leaves. So it puts out like it's healthy. But as the Lord Jesus comes and inspects it very closely, as He does in this text, He realizes it has no fruit. And this no-fruit reality of the people of Israel is going to lead them down a path of judgment. Now, we saw this last week with regards to the triumphal entry in the early part of Mark chapter 11. We actually referenced Luke chapter 19, which was the text of the triumphal entry for Luke, where Jesus, as he's going into Jerusalem, he's hearing the cries of Hosanna and the palm branches waving, and he's riding in on this donkey. This moment you would think would be of incredible joy, Luke tells us that Jesus is weeping. 
Jesus is grieving. Why is he weeping? Why is he grieving? Because he says as he looks at Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, like a chick, like a mother hen who's been looking for her chicks, I would have gathered you and yet you would not be gathered. And a day is coming when you will be surrounded and hemmed in on every side. And even that temple, not one stone will be left upon another. He prophesies in the midst of the triumphal entry of what will be historically fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem and the temple is utterly destroyed. In this moment of what looks like great life, great joy, they all recognize Jesus. They want him to be king. He looks at all of them and looks at Jerusalem and sees spiritual death. Similarly, as Jesus is coming from Bethany on his way to, guess where, the temple... He's a little hungry. You bet he is. He's hungry for the fruit to be born out of the life of spiritual spiritual Israel. He wants to see his people bear the fruit that's in keeping with faith and repentance. And he doesn't see it. And so he runs up to the tree, though it looks like it's alive, and it doesn't have figs. Mark says, well, can't expect it to have figs. It's not fig season. You don't look for watermelon in the middle of December. And if you do, they're not very good. This five or six, maybe even seven weeks too early for the first ripened figs at this point at the time of Passover. And so as Jesus is going to the tree, even though he's hungry, we know that he's not really looking for food. He's not really expecting food. What is he trying to do? He's trying to say something to the disciples. He's trying to make a point. And we're, we understand from Mark's own Reflection that they got it. Look there in verse 14. And his disciples heard it. Mark wants us to know. The point was not that the fig tree didn't have figs so much, physically speaking. The point is that this fig tree as a symbol for Israel is exactly a glimpse into the spiritual state of the people in Jerusalem of which he's about to enter in the temple. That these are a people who look on the outside like they are alive. It's bustling, it's Passover, pilgrims from everywhere streaming into Jerusalem. The sounds of animals and the cries of children and reunion among people who are traveling along the way. But they are like, as Matthew would put it, a people who honor me with their lips and their heart is far from me. As Paul would put it to Timothy, they are a people who have a form of godliness but have denied its power. In other words, they're people who... Dress up and come to church. They sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. They give tithes. They volunteer in the nursery. And they're a million miles from God. They don't have a vibrant, vital, loving, and committed relationship to God. Now, one of the questions I want to ask, it's not the full thrust of the text in which we're before us, but by way of application, it's worth a note. How does that happen? How do a people who are faithful pilgrims to Passover and how do religious leaders like the, the, the Pharisees who are mentioned here, the chief priests and the scribes who are fighting mad and angry, ready to destroy Jesus, who is the answer to all of the hope of the Old Testament, how is it that these people are so blind and so hardened and so darkened to the realities of the truths that they're actually so close to, that they participate in day in and day out? I'd like to suggest at least one answer. There might be more than one, but one answer that's towards the beginning uh, or towards the center of this text. 
This kind of parallel life, this kind of spiritual parallelism where we're form of religion without its power, honoring it with our lips, but our heart is far from us. This happens in our relationship with um, religion, spirituality with the Lord, when the foundation of our faith rests on what we do rather than on what God has done. When the reality of our faith rests on what we do rather than on what God has done. Or even differently, when the reality of our faith rests on who we are, it's about us rather than about who He is. Do You see, when we begin to make religion, even our worship and our good deeds and the things that we do about us, we are turning worship and the Christian faith on its head. We're turning it into something it is not. Some of us may be here today for us. You know, church just, well, church just makes me feel so good. Just being there in that room, that little quaint chapel in downtown Franklin, all of those friendly people, it's, it's like a throwback to the days of Mayberry, and it just makes me feel so good, and I've got friends there, and I've got all of these things, nice accoutrements, earthly realities to, to wonder, you know, you can, you know, can leave church, and you can walk in downtown Franklin, it's just like a dream, Right? And I like the old hymns. I like the older hymns. I like the, I like the liturgy. I like this particular thing, all of the elements. It's like, uh, these are the things I enjoy. And the reality is some of those things, as good as they may be, and in themselves not wrong, when they begin to take the center, when they begin to be the motivating reason, the foundation on which we are actually living the Christian life, uh, we have taken the fruit of what is often born from vital Christianity, and we have sought to make it a root. And when we have done that, we have turned all of Christianity on its head. What happens is we begin making church and the Christian faith about ourselves rather than about God and about others. Listen, this happens so often in our own lives, doesn't it? It's very subtle. Husbands, you know this. You know, the game is going to come on at 2.30. It's Saturday. Friday night, your loving, dear, precious wife, she has given you a list a mile long of things that you must accomplish on Saturday. And so you get up at 3.30 in the morning <laughs> and you begin to knock those things out because you've got a game to watch at 2.30 in the afternoon. Now, let me ask you. You go through that list and what is the motivating force in your heart? Out of love and the pleasure of your wife, to see her joy in the things that need to be done in the life of your home. You get up excited to be able to get those things done because you just want to please and because you love your, your wife, right? No. You want to watch the game at 2.30 and you've got to get this thing done. So why are you doing all the things that you're doing? Are you doing them for her? Are you doing them for you? That's the difference between true Christianity and religion. The religion of a bad kind. There's religion of a good kind that the Scripture speaks of. But the religion of a bad kind. The kind that actually is focused on self as the motivating exercise of belief and practice. 
that actually is asking the question in Christianity and in coming to church, what's primarily in it for me? Listen, the person who has really begun to understand the gospel and has fallen head over heels in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that love is beginning to manifest itself in increasing affection and obedience to what it is that Christ has called, begins to ask the question, not what's in it for me, but how can I lay my life down for the Savior who has loved me like that? That's a fundamentally different heart. You remember that moment as, as children, the one time that you obeyed your children from your heart, from your parents, from your heart. You remember that one time? They asked you to clean your room and you genuinely wanted and longed for their smile. And you didn't just want to be able to have screen time in a minute to check the box. Remember the one time that happened? And do you remember the lightness in your soul? Do you remember the joy when you could truly experience it? That's the heart of Christian faith. A so deep self-forgetfulness and a love for Christ and his commands that we begin to joyfully lay our lives down for the good of what he's called us to. When this gets distorted, what happens is a kind of idolatry is insipid within even our worship, even in the best things that we do. And I believe this is the problem in Israel that Jesus is addressing. Why do I think that? Well, let's look again at the text. When Jesus enters the temple and begins to overturn the money changers' tables and the seats of those who sold the pigeons and even those who were buying uh, the wares and running them out on the rail, I want you to notice in verse 17 his teaching alongside that action because it's an important teaching. We get a summary of it here in verse 17. He says, Is it not written? So notice he's quoting the Old Testament. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, when Jesus uses this language, my house, Jesus is, of course, identifying uh, with Yahweh, the, the revelation of God's covenant name in the Old Testament, who was the leader of the people of, of Israel, their, their God. He's identifying himself with that God, that he is indeed that God. My house shall be called a house of prayer for, uh, for the nations. Now, as he, as he does this, it's important to see that Jesus is in some ways speaking as a king and acting as a king. He has just come in triumphantly. From Bethany riding on the donkey, he's been, as it were, put into power. He went into the temple the night before and he inspected everything. They went back to Bethany. Now he's come in and what's he going to do? He's going to set things straight. He's going to order things like he's in charge because he's in charge. This is his temple. He's come in to cleanse this temple or we might say even clean the house of the temple. Now, we didn't say this last week, but I think it's worthy of, of noting that, that part of what Mark has done is he's given to us a portrait of the fact that Jesus is a kind of second Solomon or greater Solomon in this text. Uh, where we see a, a, a king or a to-be king riding on a donkey in the Old Testament is in 1 Kings chapter 1. It's actually Solomon. David puts Solomon on his own donkey. He rides him over to the priest Sadek so that he can be anointed as king. And then what does Solomon do? What's the main work that we remember Solomon for? The building of the temple. Where does Jesus go? Right after riding the donkey and heading into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. He's a son of David who has been anointed like Solomon walking into the triumphant entry. 
He is now going straight to the temple, which is the heart of Solomon's ministry. And he does exactly what Solomon does. Wrong. He does the exact opposite of what Solomon does. What did Solomon do? He built the temple. What is Jesus doing? I'd like to suggest to you he's tearing down the temple. Not just cleansing it. I think that's a a mistaken kind of nomenclature to fully grasp all of what it is that Jesus is doing here. He's actually establishing a new temple. And how is he doing it? By giving us a foreshadowing of the destruction of the temple that's soon to come. There's going to be a destruction of this temple in a matter of decades. The people of Israel are going to be gone into exile and dispersed everywhere. Um, The Gentiles are going to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that through the book of Acts. We're going to see the spreading of the gospel to all of the nations. We were told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God made a covenant with David that one of David's sons would build the temple. And we see that that is Solomon. But part of 2 Samuel 7 wasn't actually fulfilled. Uh, Notice these words from 2 Samuel 7. When the days are over and you rest from your fathers, speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Sounds like Solomon. And who will come from your own body? Again, sounds a lot like Solomon. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Sounds very Solomonic. And I will establish his kingdom forever. Hmm. Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I don't know about you, but I remember reading aspects of the narrative of the life of Solomon and it seems to me that there will be pieces of Solomon's life, shall we say, are sinfully suspect. That maybe in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's more than just Solomon in view. That maybe the son who God will be a father of is no less than the one in whom we're looking at in this text. The one who is truly establishing a temple and a kingdom that will last forever. Now we said last week, I was quoting actually, I think, I think it was from Marva Dawn, we quoted this. Where she said, if... The Lord is going to build His kingdom, whether it's in our own midst or in our own hearts. What must He do first? He must tear down the kingdoms that we're trying to build. That's how it works, you understand. For God to build His kingdom in our own hearts, in our own lives, even as a, as a church or as a church at large in the world, our personal fiefdoms have to come down. We actually are praying that, and we'll pray it later in our service when we say, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to hear the implication of that. You're also saying, not my kingdom done, not my will be done, but yours. Which necessarily means unbuilding has to take place. Do you see? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's unbuilding the temple that is no temple at all. A temple whose mission is doing the exact opposite of what it is it's supposed to do. Which is why it's ultimately coming under judgment. Jesus is the expression that something greater than Solomon has indeed arrived. And notice how he puts it. And and it's a little, well, there's some debate here among some scholars. But notice verse 17 again. Notice the parallelism. 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, notice the parallelism there. House of prayer, den, which is a house, a kind of house, that's been turned into robbery. Now, if we, can, if we can think through the language, a house of prayer, this is a dwelling place. The temple is a dwelling place from which we are to commune with the Lord. That's what the temple was. But you have turned it into a kind of dwelling place, a den, from which the presence of the Lord is being obstructed and barriered and kept from you are indeed robbing, not only from God, but also from your neighbors. What am I saying? Well, a little historical note here. It was traditional that the people of Israel would stop by on their journey into to Jerusalem at Passover to come around the hills of, of the Mount of Olives. And as they did, there would be a whole array of of, of mercantilism that would arise. Those who were selling pigeons and sacrifices and exchanging money. Your money had to be exchanged because you couldn't pay the temple tax with Roman coins that had the sign of Caesar on it, his image, that was considered idolatry. So you had to exchange your money and get a, another coin, uh, an indigenous coin that could be used there in the temple. And so they were, this service was regularly done for the people of Israel as they were pilgriming their way to Jerusalem. Well, under Caiaphas, only a few years earlier from the text we're in, all of that mercantilism got moved from the Mount of Olives to the temple proper. And here, in this moment, Jesus has gone in and inspected the night before. He's seen all the tables and the seats. And he recognizes that now all of the mercantilism, all of the exchanging and all of the purchasing, is happening in the outer court of the temple known as the court of the Gentiles. This was the one place reserved on the temple precinct for those who were non-Israelites to come and pray and commune with the Lord. Now you can imagine the thought process of the Sadducees who oversaw uh, this aspect of, of the, the ministry. You know, we don't really have that many Gentiles that come. There's a lot of wasted space. It's about 300 yards long and about 250 yards wide. And they've got to bring all of the animals from the Mount of Olives. You know, pigeons are flying everywhere as they're coming in. Let's move it. It'll be convenient. It'll be easy for the people of Israel right here in this unusable space within the temple pre in order for worship to become better and smoother for the people of Israel. I mean, we don't really have those filthy Gentiles uh, coming in here anyway. I don't know why God gave them so much space around the table to begin with. And here is Jesus who comes into the sacred space of the temple, who has come for the purpose of fulfilling the covenant promises given to Israel long ago through the patriarch Abraham. When God came to him and he said, Through your seed, I will bless all the families of the earth. Jew and Gentile alike. 
I will purchase for myself a people for my own possession from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and, and nation. Israel, this is not about you, you understand. You are my servants to show forth my glory to the world that the nations might come to me. Because they see my love poured out upon you and my promises extended to them. It's not about you. But what begins to happen, right, to all of us as we get further distant from the covenant of our God, from His commands, is very often we begin to think, no, this worship thing really is about us. You know, Jerusalem's really about Israelites. These sacrifices is really about, it's really about us. It's really about our personal identity. And, and Jesus here, as he's walking in, seeing that there's no place for Gentiles to worship. There's no quiet place for them to be able to pray and offer prayers to the Lord. And yet we see throughout the Old Testament, don't we? Gentiles coming to know the Lord. Remnants and glimpses of the spreading gospel that will be fulfilled ultimately in, in Christ. It's all moving in that direction. We get to the end of the book of Revelation where we have all of the dizzying diversity of humankind being brought together in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is here to do. And his concern is that they have robbed the Gentiles of an opportunity to commune with God by virtue of the convenience that they have set up by thinking about themselves in worship rather than thinking about the mission of the temple for worship. What God had been doing from all eternity past. And by robbing Gentiles of a place to enter into the presence of the Lord in prayer, they're robbing God of the glory that He is to receive from those Gentiles who would worship Him there. You know what hit me as I was thinking through this particular moment, a moment that isn't it fascinating that is about the purity of worship. It's about worshiping God according to His parameters. He has reserved this space, these precincts for the Gentiles. This is about regulating our worship according to the Bible's worship. That principle is here. But isn't it interesting that what's important about this regulation is actually not excluding those who God is welcoming. That's the point. That's the concern regarding the purity of worship. They're excluding those who God has welcomed. Now, friends, this is where it hits home right for all of us here in this room. Whether we're looking back over false beliefs that have plagued the church in our own context, whether it's racism or classism or sexism, or any number of other things where we are keeping people whom the gospel is being extended to at arm's length, we sometimes have done this explicitly, methodically, and systemically. We have sought to do this. There are other times where we've done it by implication, subconsciously, through social cues and expressions and looks and inhospitable actions where we're telling that type, you're not really welcome here. You know, we're not keeping the Gentiles from coming. We've just set up an entire mercantilism in the midst of where they could pray. But they can come if they would like. Oh. Oh. I don't know the motivation and deliberative process that went into the decision to move 
the money changers to this point in the Gentiles' court. It might not have been an overt attempt to exclude Gentiles. It could have easily have been, well, this is easier for us. This is more convenient. We don't have to bring all those animals from the Mount of Olives. It could have easily have just been thoughtless decision-making that deeply affected and excluded others unintentionally. And reflecting upon this message this week and even thinking about it you know, yesterday, having this run around my head, I had to ask myself, what do I do subconsciously even, which is you know, it's hard to know what you do subconsciously because it's subconscious, um, and, uh, but as you stop and pause and reflect, Lord, bring to my consciousness these things. What do I do subconsciously that may be marginalizing, excluding those in whom God would welcome? What are we doing as a, as a church that, that may be keeping certain groups or certain people or sectors even of God's church at arm's length? I mean, I, the question I asked myself yesterday, if Jesus were to enter here today, who or what would he run off? What would he clean house with? And what would he be making room for that right now there may not be room for? The radical nature of Jesus' actions would not have been lost upon the audience uh, there in, in Israel around the temple, and certainly not Mark's audience, which was probably largely Gentile. I want you to think of the irony of this. This is Passover. What is Passover? Passover is the moment where, where God redeemed the people of Israel out of Egypt. He separated them out from the pagan nation that had enslaved them and called them his own cherished people. They had an identity in a very specific way, nationally coming out of the Exodus. That's how they would have marked Passover. And notice what Jesus is doing here at Passover. He's doing what the psalmist would do later. And what Isaiah 56 said when we read it earlier. And what Psalm 86 and Psalm 46 would teach us as we reflect on that not only will Israelites be in the kingdom of God, but those who are named Cush and Philistia and Rahab or Egypt. Or Middle Tennessee folk like you and me. These will be named among my people. These will be my people. People who look very different from Israelites. These will be my people. This has been the Lord's mission from the very beginning. You can kind of make sense then, can't you, as to why it ends this whole section in prayer. Why he begins to say, listen... Disciples, if you live long enough, and some of them experience this directly, you're going to see this temple go away. You're going to see Jerusalem leveled. If your hope is in bricks and mortar, it's about to be dashed. Hope in God. Have faith in God. Don't have faith just in the rituals. Not in the rites. Not simply in the heritage, as wonderful as that may be. Have faith in God and go to Him and He will answer your prayers that are in accordance with His will. He actually says, if you pray that this mountain would fall into the sea. What's this mountain? He may be speaking of the temple itself. If this temple would fall into the sea, 
If, if all of this would be leveled and all of the valleys would be raised up, I want you to see that the reason for all of that destruction will be to make a highway of salvation unto Jesus Christ for all the nations. Sometimes we can hold so tightly to the things that we like and the preferences that we're used to, the accoutrements and comforts that we are inclined towards, that it creates unnecessary obstacles for those who are unlike us to be welcomed into the midst of the people of God. Here is Jesus calling us on and forward to a vision of the true temple that's uniting all people in Christ. You see, at the opening of John chapter 2, Jesus is toe-to-toe with the Pharisees. And they ask him to give a sign of his authority. And he says, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And they said, you're crazy. It took us 46 years to build this temple. There's no way you're going to raise it up in three days. And it's very clear they didn't get it. We're told later that the disciples understood it after his resurrection. That Jesus wasn't referring to bricks and mortar. He wasn't referring to the temple mount. He was referring to his body. You see, that's our temple. Every one of us who are in Christ dwell within the dwelling place of who he is. And what it is that he's done for us. He is the one who was destroyed so that we might be rebuilt. Maybe we could put it this way. He was the one that was excluded so that we could be included and would never have to feel the need to exclude anyone else save in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what happened on the cross. He had already been rejected by his people. And there on the cross, his own father is turning from him. And his darkness falls. And the charge of our sin is placed upon him. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken, excluded me? And the implication underneath unspoken is, I have forsaken you and excluded you. Because I, with you, want to welcome them. I want them to be one as we are one, he prays. That's what I want. That's why I go through this. That's why I suffer. I'm willing to receive the worst of exclusion in order to give to you the deepest of hospitality. Only the clean one who is the temple can clean the temple that is you and me. Only He, as He comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, can begin to grant us the insight, the clarity, and the love and the affection for one another that goes to the links of being willing to even die for the sake of seeing others come to know Jesus. Do you see, that's how our Savior lived. How can we then let petty differences keep us apart? How is it that we can allow things less than the reality of the eternal gospel keep us from recognizing brothers and sisters across a variety of lines? 
How might the spirit and the aroma be different? If all of a sudden that gospel became the unifying force within this local congregation and between this local congregation and others who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, what would that look like? Well, it might just be a foretaste of heaven because that's where we're headed. A place just like that where we have become so self-forgetful and so Christ-consumed that together from varieties of backgrounds and differences and struggles, naming the name of Christ together, we stand righteous with one robe as one people, a singular bride, a new Jerusalem. Beautiful before a groom who embraces us with all of his love. This is the end for which the Lord has made us. We should practice this end now in preparation for the day this is so. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me and for us? How might we move this from a mere recognition into a life of demonstration of living out the gospel before those who are different than us in order that that court of the Gentiles might get fuller still? You know, today as we gather in this little chapel we gather in a court of the Gentiles. That's what this is. If we were transported back to the first century in that moment, there was no room for us there in the temple. Is there a room in our midst for those who would name the name of Christ no matter where they come from, no matter what background they're in? Is there room here? By God's grace in every way, there'll be increasing room in our hearts first and in our lives forevermore. In Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, only you can do this work, challenging as this testimony is. We give it to you and we ask you, would you now such stir our hearts with such affection for you and your commitment to us that this kind of demonstration would be increasingly true of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church and its membership. Let us be a people who so love the purity of your church that we labor for it zealously but not to the degree that we would destroy godly biblical peace. And let us, Lord, so zealously labor for peace in the body of Christ, for that is an ethic of which you have called us to, but never to the point that we would compromise the purity of your church. And as I pray for that, I admit, Lord, this is a work in progress. And who is fit for these things? Well, only the Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit of which he has granted to us. May it take hold of our hearts and lives and in every way realize the kingdom further in our own time and generation. Come, Lord Jesus, and answer this prayer. We pray it in your holy name. Amen.